Okay, we've been in a preaching series that we've been calling Christ Crucified. Each week we've been looking at the cross of Jesus from different sides, from different angles, and allowing all that God did for us through the cross to just continue to take our breath each week as we are stunned and amazed and stand in awe of all that God pulled off through the cross. In this series we've been asking one central question, and that's why did Jesus die on the cross, and what did God accomplished for us when he did? What did God pull off through the death of Christ? And if you've been with us for these weeks, you know that now so many wondrous, weighty, glorious things happened for us when Jesus Christ died. We used words like propitiation, expiation, substitution. We'll use words like reconciliation. These big, meaty, biblical words to describe all the wondrous things that God has done for us. Ideas like the wrath of God that was against sin in righteousness, the fury of God was satisfied on the body and through the death of Jesus Christ. That we who should have received wrath have now received mercy. We considered the filth of our sins and sins committed against us that had stained our souls were now cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. We considered our enemies who were out to kill, to steal, to destroy us, were crushed by the victor on the cross as Christ stomps on the head of the serpent. We talked about our chains being removed, our debt being paid. Each week we considered one more different thing that God did through the cross of Christ. There are still more weeks in this series, so you can imagine still more weeks of considering all that God accomplished. So what I'm hoping you at least see as we've been walking through the series is it is no small thing that God did when Christ died on the cross. When we talk about the cross of Jesus, we're not running by that. We're not getting past it. We're not moving on to something else. We're taking a long time, a lifetime, eternity to linger at the foot of the cross and to drink in all the benefits that are there for us. So if you've tracked with us for any of that, you'll get what I say when I say that what we're considering today may be perhaps the most foundational of them all, right? So, so you know that if we've talked through all these weighty things, and I'm saying to you that the truth, the doctrine we're considering today may be foundational to them all, we're considering something that is really important. Martin Luther, the great man of the Reformation said that it's on this truth that the church stands, this hinge that the church stands or falls, that without this truth lodged in its central place, the church cannot exist for even a single hour. As we've been walking throughout this series, we've been in lots of different settings and lots of different scenes as we've considered these various metaphors. So when we talked about, for example, atonement or propitiation, we were standing, as it were, in the temple courts, and we saw the sacrifices, the blood being shed from the animals as the wrath of God was poured out, mercy extended to us. When we talked about redemption, we were now in the world of the slaves. We saw the shackles and the chains, the whip to the back, and we saw that they needed a redeemer to set them free. When we talked about ransom, now we were in the marketplace, and we considered our debt and the fact that we didn't have the currency or the means to pay back what we owed. Today, we're in yet another setting, a different world. Today, we're in 
the legal world. We're in the world of depositions and gavels and judges and courts. We're standing, as it were, today in a courtroom. Only, as you stand there, you are the one that's on trial. You are the one standing in the defendant's seat. You're the one that's standing there. And the crimes that you have committed have been laid out for all the court to see. Every one of your sins has been registered as evidence against you in this trial. And all your deeds, every sin you have ever committed, has been presented as evidence against you. The charges are many, and the case is all but closed because the evidence is clear to everyone. You are guilty. And standing before you, sitting as it were on his seat, is God. The righteous judge, in all his holiness, in all his majesty, in all his perfection, in all his justice. And you stand on trial before God. Your crimes are clear. The evidence is in. And this case is all but closed. All you wait is to hear the sentence and the verdict that will ensue. One word alone remains to be said in this courtroom. Guilty. And yet into that courtroom, God opens his mouth to shout, Innocent. And you've got to ask yourself, how could that be? How, on our end, can we who are clearly guilty be declared innocent? And how, on God's end, can he who is just declare as innocent those who are clearly guilty. That is the doctrine of justification. That's the truth we're considering today. Justification is this big biblical word in Romans 3, 4, Galatians, that simply is the good news that on the cross, God forgave your sin and declared you to be righteous. That God pardoned your guilt and declared you to be innocent. That through the cross of Jesus, you who were guilty were declared innocent and righteous. That God has pronounced over you that you are fit and acceptable and pleasing to him. That you are good enough for heaven as though you were there right now. So that's the truth we want to try and unpack and consider. That's the truth we want to stand in awe of today. I'm going to pray. And then we'll ask the Lord's help to do that together. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for these brothers and sisters that you've gathered here. We thank you that we have a Bible that we can open so that we can know you. We thank you that we can gather to hear your word. And it truly is your word we have gathered to hear. We do not want to hear the wisdom of man, the thought or philosophy of man. We want to hear from your word and what you would speak over us, speak about us, what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. Help us today to marvel, to believe, to receive the truth of justification, to drink in these benefits, to, to see for a moment that we stand justified by God through faith, that we are pleasing to you through Christ. I pray that you would help us to wonder at that truth today. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, so if you were here last week, you know that we tried to tackle an impossible question. We asked the question of how can a good God allow evil and suffering? And then we asked the follow-up question of how do you fit together or reconcile the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility? So if you were here last week, you know that all we did was basically ask hard questions without really trying to answer them. It just seemed like we were raising one impossible scenario after another. But if I could get you for a second to take a giant step back and consider this from a larger perspective, from the perspective of heaven itself, I want you to hear that those questions would be a piece of cake. This is one you should ponder. Try this one. How can unjust men stand justified before a just God? How can a good God who is just allow human beings who are clearly in the wrong to stand in the right before him? How can God pardon and acquit and declare innocent and righteous those that are guilty? How can he forgive their sin and declare them innocent? How can he, in his love, show grace and mercy to the sinful, to the guilty, while not compromising his own justice and righteousness? Now, I don't know if you fully grasp or appreciate the complexity of that problem. If I get how much of a conundrum that is, but I want you to hear that the Bible definitely does. That this is a question that the Bible wrestles with from Genesis onwards, particularly even the passage that Dennis read for us. That the book of Romans is wrestling with many questions. Perhaps the question is this one. How can God who is just justify the wicked? How can he declare right or innocent or righteous those that are clearly not? In fact, God seems to say that this exact thing is an abomination. Right? You and I know that any court that would do that is a, an abomination. Proverbs 17 verse 5, hear this. He who justifies the guilty and he who condemns the innocent are both alike an abomination to the Lord. That makes sense. He who justifies, that's declares right, innocent, those that are guilty, and he who condemns those that are innocent, that is an abomination to the Lord. In fact, when God is telling his people in Exodus how to set up their country, what laws to put in place, they were slaves, they never had these, he tells them, you make sure you never justify the wicked and you never condemn the innocent. To do so, would be an abomination. And you and I know that. We would agree. Whether you're here and you're a Christian or not, you agree. You know that's how the world runs. You know that's how justice works. Let me give you an example of our culture, our city, our world, that we all know that's how justice works. As an example, a few years ago, for about 133 days, America was glued to its TV to watch what has been called the trial of the century. If you remember, it was the trial of O.J. Simpson. For 133 days, Americans watched this trial. And then on October 3, 1995, a jury gave this verdict. They declared O.J. Simpson not guilty. 
Now, I don't know if O.J. was innocent or guilty. I sort of know, but I don't really know, right? But, but that's not what I want to talk about. Do you remember the reaction to that verdict? They took a poll at the time. Some 56% of Americans, that's more than one out of every two, vehemently disagreed and were outraged by that verdict. It was front page news for weeks. It was everything our city, our culture, our country, our world talked about. It was rumored that when Boris Yeltsin landed in America, the first thing he asked President Clinton was, do you think OJ did it? Because everybody was talking about it. So here's my question. Why such a reaction? Why all the stir? Why such outrage? Now I know that there were all kinds of secondary issues about race and all those other things, but you put that aside, when you boil this thing down to its core, to its essence, the outrage was this idea, just the potential that a guilty man could be justified by a court. That a guilty man could be declared innocent though his crimes were in. Just the thought that someone who was in the wrong would be declared to be in the right sent shockwaves through our culture, through our country, through our world. Because we get that. We get how justice is supposed to work. We get the idea that the guilt has to be paid for. You know that. If a crime were committed against someone you loved, if someone you loved were robbed or raped or murdered or hurt, you would demand justice. And if the guilty were brought into a court and the judge said to them, I declare you innocent, you would be outraged. If the judge even said, I forgive you, if even moved with compassion, pardoned, you would not sit back and say, how kind. You would demand justice. The guilt must be paid for. So then, that is the problem of the gospel, the problem of the scriptures. How can God justify the wicked? How can God, who is more righteous than any man, more just than any judge, more holy than any court, how can God possibly declare righteous those that are guilty? So you can appreciate the shockwaves that must have went through the church in Rome when Paul writes in Romans 4, 5, God justifies the ungodly. Think of that. Paul has just said, God is in the business of declaring right those that are wicked and ungodly. That God's practice is to declare right, just, justified, the ungodly. And to be sure, remember, those are the only ones that God justifies. The ungodly. The ungodly are the only ones God declares to be good and right and acceptable to Him. God doesn't justify pastors. God doesn't justify worship leaders. God doesn't justify Congregationalists or Pentecostals or Presbyterians. God doesn't justify those who are religious or trying real hard or those who serve the poor. God does not justify anyone but the ungodly. Everyone God justifies is an ungodly person. A wicked and ungodly person. And to be sure and to be clear, that's what the Bible says that we are. Ungodly. 
godly. So consider that word for a second. What, what does that word mean? When you say something is unsomething, it can usually mean that it's not something. So you could take ungodly to mean that we're not gods. So God justifies everyone that's not God. Or there's a better way of understanding ungodly. Ungodly is more like the word un-American. When we say that someone or something is un-American, we don't just mean that they're an immigrant from somewhere else. We don't mean they have a passport from Spain or from France or came here from Russia. When we say that something or someone is un-American, we mean that they stand in opposition to America. Right? Terrorism is un-American. It's something that stands against, at enmity with, opposition to America. It stands for that which America hates and it's against that which America loves. That's un-American. When the scriptures say that you are ungodly, it's not that you're just not God. It's that by nature and by choice, as sinners, you stand in opposition to God. You are for all that God hates. And you hate all that God loves. And that you find yourself at enmity with God. Not just sort of leaning towards God and God justifies, but that you were in opposition against God when God justifies. That you weren't sympathetic towards God, that there was nothing in you Godward. You were ungodly. So then again, our question is, how does God pardon us? How does he take ungodly people? You and I stand like Osama bin Laden would stand before a U.S. judge. You wouldn't say how kind for a U.S. judge to pardon him. You would demand justice. So how does God justify the wicked? Every week in this series, we've raised an impossible question, and we've only got one answer we keep coming back to. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Every week we come back again to the cross of Jesus Christ, to Christ crucified. We go down different paths to get there, we walk down different roads, but every road seems to lead us back to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. As we take in, as we marvel, as we fill our lungs again with what God accomplished for us through the cross. And this week we marvel at this, that Christ was crucified for our justification. Christ was crucified for our justification so that on the cross, the most marvelous exchange you could possibly imagine happens. That Jesus stands in the place of guilty criminals so that guilty criminals could stand in the place of Jesus. That Jesus comes and stands in our place so that our sin becomes His. So that we could stand in His place so that His righteousness could become ours. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin becomes sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that? He who knew no sin becomes sin for us so that we who were sinners might become the righteousness of God. 
We trade places at the cross and Jesus stands where we stand so that all of our sin and all the evidence against us is now laid on him and God judges him and condemns him and sentences him for our crimes as though they were his. He so unites himself with us and us with himself that our crimes become his and God lays on him the punishment of us all so that on the cross truly every bit of evidence against you, every crime you had committed against God, Jesus becomes the one who has committed them. As though he stood in your place. God judges, pours out his wrath, pours out his sentence, pours out the death penalty onto his son so that we could be forgiven. And if that were not enough, God not only declares us not guilty, he actually credits us as being righteous. It's one thing to say you're not guilty. It's another to now declare you innocent, fit, acceptable, righteous. It's like this. If you get caught cheating on an exam, it's one thing for the teacher to say to you, I'm not going to fail you. I'm not going to suspend you. I'm not going to kick you out of school. It's an entirely different thing for the teacher to now say, and not only that, you get an A on the exam and a hundred on your report card. That's insanity, or that's grace. That is what Christ accomplished through his death. You picture two ledgers, one with all your sins and all your deeds, every wicked thing you have ever done, and another, other, another ledger with all of Christ's righteousness, every good thing he has ever done, every bit of his perfection. You hold these two ledgers, and now you trade yours with Jesus. So that you give him yours and he gives you his. So that he takes on your ledger of sin and you take on his ledger of righteousness. Jesus has so united himself with us that our sin becomes his and his righteousness becomes ours. Or biblically you would say we have imputed unto him our sin. He has imputed unto us his righteousness. So united us with himself. It's like in marriage. Right? When you get married to someone, if you come into the marriage with $100,000 in debt, do you know what just happened to your spouse? They just went into debt $100,000. But if your spouse comes into that marriage with a billion dollars in the bank, do you know what just happened to you? You just became a billionaire. Right? He so unites us with himself that our sin truly becomes his. So that when God looks at his dead body, it would be as though I hung on the cross for my crimes. And his judgment is enough for me. And then, all of his righteousness credited to my account. So that now when God looks at me, he looks at me in the brilliant perfection of Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine of justification. We have traded places at the cross and Christ takes our sin and we take his righteousness. We come to this exchange guilty and sinful. Christ comes to this exchange perfect and holy and we trade places so that we leave righteous and holy and he leaves guilty and sinful and dies the death we should have died. And listen to me. If this is true, it's intensely practical. 
We're not just spouting theology so we could fill our heads. This affects the way you live. If this is true, that changes everything. That means, if this is true and you've believed it, that God now sees you like he sees Christ. Think of that. Drink that in for a second. You stand now credited with the righteousness of Christ, clothed with the purity of Christ, that you could not be more accepted by God on your best day or less accepted by God on your worst day. You are as accepted by God today as you will ever be. You're not more accepted, more innocent, more right with God, more pleasing to Him on your best day, and less so on your worst day. You are standing before God as Christ does every day, with nothing left to work for, nothing left to earn, nothing left to achieve. God could never be more pleased with you than He is right now through the righteousness of Christ. If that's true, you know what else that means? It means you can finally live with an identity that's placed in Christ and not in yourself. Here's what I mean. Practically how this will work out for you is you and I are people that are always chasing for a a sense of self-worth, a sense of identity. And usually if I asked you, who are you? What's your core understanding of yourself? What's your core identity? We'd, We'd describe that in what we've done or what work we have, or what we've accomplished, or what other people say of us, we base our identity, our sense of self-worth, on our performance and other people's opinions of us. That's usually how it works, right? We base our whole, our whole understanding of ourselves and our worth on our performance and other people's opinions of us. And when you live in that world, when you're constantly trying to achieve so that you can feel like you have a reason for why you exist. We do this in all kinds of ways. If you're at work and work is your thing, you've got to be the best. Because you need a reason for why you exist. For why you matter, why you're important, why you're significant. If you're a mom, you've got to have your children obey perfectly because they're a reflection not just of the kids, but of your worth and of what people will think of you when they obey. We're constantly chasing an identity and a a source of self-worth. We can't fail. When you live in that world, you hate failure because it threatens who you are about yourself. It threatens your own sense of identity. And so you become the kind of person who never takes risks because failure would crush who you are. Or you become the kind of person that blames someone else for everything because you can't own up to your mistakes. It seems to diminish your own sense of worth or value. And you do it in religion. If you build up your identity in religion, well, you try harder and push harder. And anytime you sin or fail, you're crushed because you built this whole thing not on what Jesus has done, but what you do. Your whole sense of identity is your performance plus other people's opinions of you. Listen, if any of that resonates with you, you need to believe again the doctrine of justification. You need to hear again Romans 3, 23 saying, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If any of that resonates with you, you've got to believe again that you are right and you are good and you are acceptable because of what Jesus did. 
It's not shifting based on your performance or other people's opinions. It's fixed based on what Jesus has done. So I won't pick on you. I'll tell you for myself. I need daily to believe again the gospel and the truth of justification. Because I go so many places to find identity, to find my sense of self-worth. I need Hannah to obey, especially in public, because I need you all to think that I'm a great father. And her obedience gives me a sense that I'm worth something. Or even all of this. I'm telling you, I love what I get to do. I, I would do this for free. I would pay to do this. Finance team, that is not a proposal, right? I'm not going to do that, but I would, right? But do you know how easy it is for me to find my identity, my sense of self-worth in this performing well, in ministry going well, in, in hitting home runs on every Sunday when I preach, so that I feel like I matter and I mean something and I'm significant? Do you know how much of a roller coaster ride that is? You're constantly living your life on your performance or what someone else says of you. You're trying to impress someone else. You're constantly getting three people to say good things about you when God has declared righteous over you. When God has already declared you fit and good and acceptable and pleasing, but you need that from your neighbor also. You ignore what God has declared, pronounced over you because you need so badly for mom and dad to affirm the same thing or for neighbor or for friend or your buddies to say the same word. You're constantly either going to work to achieve identity or finally and forever rest in an identity that was achieved for you. You're either going to achieve your self-worth or you're going to receive self-worth from God. Hear that again. You're either going to achieve self-worth or you're going to receive self-worth from God. If you believed, and this is why you got to preach the gospel to yourself every day, because if you get this one day, by tomorrow you'll be tempted somewhere else. Every day to preach the gospel to you again, to your soul again, to believe I'm justified through Christ. My identity is fixed and set in Him. I don't have to perform. I don't have to chase opinions. I'm who God has declared me to be. I'm a justified sinner, declared right in His sight, adopted, what we'll talk about in two weeks, into the family of God, a child of God. So listen, you can be justified. You, though you were guilty, can be declared innocent and righteous. Your place traded with Christ. He's standing in your place for your sins. If all this is true, only one question is left. How? How can I be justified? How do you walk into this church one way and leave this church assured that you're justified? It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace we have been saved, through faith, and it's not from ourselves, it is the gift of God. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So it's by grace. That means it's a gift. You don't pay it back, you don't earn it, you don't repay it. It's a gift from God. If tomorrow I drive into this parking lot with a Lexus, and you ask, where did you get that? 
and I say to you, my father gave it to me, you would not applaud and go, you did such a good job of receiving that gift. You would say, how generous is your dad? Justification is not anything we have done. There's no human achievement, no human involvement, no human accomplishment. It is a gracious gift from God so that when it happens, you solely go, how gracious is God? It's a gift. You don't repay it. You don't earn it. You don't try to work for it. You receive it. I'll give an example. Maybe I've shared this with some of you. I have two friends in Boston named Joe and Derek. And something they would love to do was to treat me to go out to eat. Right? So if we went and it was my choice, we'd go to some cheap restaurant because that's all I could afford. But when I went with these guys, we'd always go to a nice sit-down place with drinks and appetizer, main meal, dessert, the whole works. So the, say they come to Philly and they take me to Budokan or, or whatever the most expensive restaurant you could imagine. Something so out of my league. And say we order drinks and then we order an appetizer, a main meal, dessert, the whole thing. The bill comes, say they pay for the whole thing. Imagine at that moment I say to myself, I'm going to reach into my pocket and I'm going to pull out a few bucks and I'm going to leave the tip. And by me leaving the tip, we're even. I've repaid my friends. What would you say to me? You would say, you cheap Indian, right? That's what you're thinking, I know, right? You would say, don't ruin the gift with such a horrible, improper response. What you should do is receive this gift with gratitude. Don't spoil it by thinking you're going to earn it back or pay it back. Receive it humbly and say, guys, I could never eat here. Thank you. That's appropriate. Everything else is ugly. When you try to earn or repay God through your three prayers or your four church attendances or your three good deeds, you spoil grace because grace is a gift to be humbly received. It's by grace through faith. It's through faith. Hebrews says faith is to be sure of that which we can't see, certain of what we hope for. So faith. When I sit on a chair, I trust that this chair will uphold me. When I lie on a bed, I trust that that bed will support me. And so you cast your whole life onto Christ, believing that he'll hold. That when you lie there, this thing isn't smoke and mirrors that you find was nothing, but there is a sure, solid rock that you stand on. So you believe the gospel, that there is a God and we've sinned and he sent his son to take our place and we believe in him, you have faith. Faith is you cast your whole life on this as though this was the truest thing in the universe, though you can't see it. All right? If you've ever had faith in a doctor you know what it's like to have faith in God. Maybe I can't define it, I'll describe it. You go to a doctor when you're sick, they write something on a paper, you bring that to the drugstore, and you swallow those pills whole, though you have no idea what it is, because you're convinced this person knows how to save you. And so you throw yourself onto Christ, convinced that he can save you. Or, or if you've had faith in a father, you know what it's like to have faith in God. One of the games that Hannah and I always play is this game called Rocket Ship. I saw the guys in Boston playing it with their kids when I was still single, so now I play. She comes running to me, I say, one, two, three, Rocket Ship, and I throw her into the air as high as I can. And this two-year-old, 25 pounds, goes flailing into the air, comes back because of gravity into my hands. I'll tell you what she doesn't do. 
She doesn't give me a right hook and say, what did you just do? In the few words that she knows, with a raspy voice, she goes, again. <laughs> and so I throw her, and then she'll go, again. Why? Because I've played that game with her a hundred times, and I have never dropped her, not once. And so she believes. Faith in God, faith in Christ is that same thing. You bank your life on him as though he was the surest and truest thing in the universe, because he is. It's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. It's in Christ. No other worldview, no other religion, no other God, no other thought, no other philosophy, not your self-striving, nothing else but Christ alone. Christ who alone was fully God to satisfy God's justice, but was fully man to represent us, Christ alone. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So let me end with this. You come to church today. Some of you, maybe you come here and you would ask your own soul, am I justified? Am I right before God? Am I innocent? If I were to die today, am I sure and confident that God would declare me innocent and righteous? I want you to know that you could leave this church justified. I mean that. Jesus told a story where two men go into the temple, to a church. One was really religious, one was a terrible sinner. The terrible sinner went to church that day, he beat his chest, he couldn't even look to heaven, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified. So that literally means, this doesn't need to take four months or six years, you could leave this church justified by God. You could literally leave knowing as sure as you know anything that you have been declared right by Christ. So if you're there, would you take the risk of believing this to be true? To confess that you are guilty, that when you look in your life you know you've sinned, that you're not perfect? And then would you throw yourself onto Christ? Would you trust Him? Would you believe that God so loved you that he gave his son to die in your place for your sins so that you could be completely innocent, so that you never have to strive or work for this again, but you could believe it to be true. And if you're here and you have been justified, then would you celebrate the good news of the gospel again? Maybe would you repent that you've been trying to find identity in a thousand places when Jesus has already provided you one? Would you believe again the gospel that you're not the sum of your performance, you're not the sum of what other people say over you, but you are what God has declared to be true, that you are right and good and pleasing and acceptable in His sight through Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Amen. Let's pray. For all who would believe here, Father, today, you give this promise that we could leave here justified. That we could come with our filth and our guilt and our sin and our shame and through no work of our own but to receive your gracious gift through faith, we could walk out of here justified. Declared righteous, declared innocent, declared fitting, imputed with the righteousness of Christ, 
counted righteous as Christ, reckoned unto our account righteous in Christ, that even today we could stop living without God, but that the Holy Spirit would take residence in our hearts and now begin the work of sanctification so that we could actually be righteous like Christ and live that life out, but that we could leave here today knowing as sure as we know anything that we are approved by God, acceptable in His sight, favorable and pleasing to Him. For every brother and sister that has lived under the weight of not believing that, would you set us free today? Set us free to find our identity not in other people's opinions, not even in our performance, but in Christ. We will either spend the rest of our lives trying to achieve an identity, or we will even now and tomorrow and the day after keep receiving the one you have given us through Christ. I pray that you would move every man and woman here to believe the gospel every day, even today. Answer this prayer better than we've prayed it. We give you thanks that the gospel is true. We thank you for our justification in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.